Hey y'all, I'm Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. I'm one of your pastors here at Zao. And uh, I'm coming up a little early today. Normally it's when we have the reading of the scripture, but I thought I owed you all a little bit of a preface. You see, we are in um, a series right now called Underground, where we are going through the book of Mark, chapter by chapter. And we've made a commitment to read the book of Mark through a queer lens. Now, we've been doing that by accompanying our reading with uh, commentaries by queer and trans people, scholars, teachers, um, theologians, pastors. And uh, this week, for chapter six, in that Queering the Bible commentary that we are referencing, uh, the person who wrote the commentary is me. Thanks. So... So if you've been here for, for the previous five chapters, you know that, that these scholars have a, have a tendency to take one uh, section of a chapter and kind of expound upon it from a queer lens. Well, I didn't understand the assignment, and uh, I did too much, <laughs> which is kind of a theme, and uh, I'm, I'm just sort of banking on you guys being into that, uh, the me doing too much. So um, I, in my section, I did the whole chapter. I just like went through the entire chapter of uh, six in Mark, and, and I talked through it uh, as a queer person from my queer lens. And when we talk about the Bible here, a lot of times there's, some, there's just some angst about like how to read the Bible, frankly, whether to read the Bible, right? Because so many of us have been taught the Bible from one very particular dominant and privileged perspective. And that has skewed the scriptures so that they are not life-giving and liberating to all people, especially those marginalized and oppressed by empire, which is the point of scripture. But rather, they have become a tool of empire and oppression and a text used to hurt and harm people who are most vulnerable and most oppressed. So a lot of us are like, why do we even mess with that? And the answer is because that liberating message actually is the heart of the text. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we have to lean on one another in order to discern it, to find it, to rediscover it, and to discover it anew in our context because as a living word, the scripture actually has something new to say to each of us in every moment. And we do that by listening to one another, by, by uplifting and amplifying perspectives of marginalization and oppression so that we can find the liberation for all people in it. So I wanted you all to see it in action. So what we're going to do today is go through the entire chapter six of the book of Mark, story by story, and I want you to see how my reading of it as a queer person might be different from the reading that you might have heard somewhere else. Um, we did a little bit of this earlier this year in the series Brief, where I encouraged folks to read whole books of the Bible in one sitting. There are a lot of books and scriptures that are short enough that you can just do that. This is a little bit longer. It's 56 verses, but I figure we've got Ruth is our, like, dedicated scripture reader, and I think that we can all, uh, we can all journey through that chapter together. So I'm going to invite Ruth to come up and read chapter 6 of the book of Mark. Jesus left that place and came to his hometown. His disciples followed him. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. 
Many who heard him were surprised. Where did this man get all this? What's this wisdom he's been given? What about the powerful acts accomplished through him? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't he Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? They were repulsed by him and fell into sin. Jesus said to them, Prophets are honored everywhere except in their own hometowns, among their relatives, and in their own households. He was unable to do any miracles there, except that he placed his hands on a few sick people and healed them. He was appalled by their disbelief. Then Jesus traveled through the surrounding villages teaching. He called for the twelve and sent them out in pairs. He gave them authority over unclean spirits. He instructed them to take nothing for the journey except a walking stick, no bread, no bags, and no money in their belts. He told them to wear sandals, but not to put on two shirts. He said, whatever house you enter, remain there until you leave that place. If a place doesn't welcome you or listen to you, as you leave, shake the dust off your feet as a witness against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should change their hearts and lives. They cast out many demons, and they anointed many sick people with olive oil and healed them. Herod, the king, heard about these things because the name of Jesus had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and this is why miraculous powers are at work through him. Others were saying, he is Elijah. Still others were saying, he is a prophet like one of the ancient prophets. But when Herod heard these rumors, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised to life. He said this because Herod himself had arranged to have John arrested and put in prison because of Herodias, the wife of Herod's brother Philip. Herod had married her, but John told Herod, it's against the law for you to marry your brother's wife. So Herodias had it in for John. She wanted to kill him, but she couldn't. This was because Herod respected John. He regarded him as a righteous and holy person, so he protected him. John's words greatly confused Herod, yet he enjoyed listening to him. Finally, the time was right. It was on one of Herod's birthdays when he had prepared a feast for his high-ranking officials and military officers and Galilee's leading residents. Herod's daughter, Herodias, came in and danced, thrilling Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the young woman, Ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. Then he swore to her, Whatever you ask, I will give to you, even as much as half of my kingdom. She left the banquet hall and said to her mother, What should I ask for? John the Baptist's head, Herodias replied. 
Hurrying back to the ruler, she made her request. I want you to give me John the Baptist's head on a plate right this minute. Although the king was upset, because of his solemn pledge and his guests, he didn't want to refuse her. So he ordered a guard to bring John's head. The guard went to the prison, cut off John's head, brought his head on a plate, and gave it to the young woman, and she gave it to her mother. When John's disciples heard what had happened, they came and took his dead body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him everything they had done and taught. Many people were coming and going, so there was no time to eat. He said to the apostles, Come by yourselves to a secluded place and rest for a while. They departed in a boat by themselves for a deserted place. Many people saw them leaving and recognized them, so they ran ahead from all the cities and arrived before them. When Jesus arrived and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Then he began to teach them many things. Late in the day, his disciples came to him and said, This is an isolated place, and it is already late in the day. Send them away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy something to eat for themselves. He replied, You give them something to eat. But they said to him, should we go off and buy bread worth almost eight months' pay and give it to them to eat? He said to them, How much bread do you have? Take a look. After checking, they said, Five loaves of bread and two fish. He directed the disciples to seat all the people in groups as though they were having a banquet on the green grass. They sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. He took the five loaves and the two fish, looked up to heaven, blessed them, broke the loaves into pieces, and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. Everyone ate until they were full. They filled 12 baskets with the leftover pieces of bread and fish, about five thousand had eaten. Right then, Jesus made his disciples get into a boat and go ahead to the other side of the lake toward Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After saying goodbye to them, Jesus went up onto a mountain to pray. Evening came and the boat was in the middle of the lake, but he was alone on the land. He saw his disciples struggling they were trying to row forward, but the wind was blowing against them. Very early in the morning, he came to them, walking on the lake. He intended to pass by them. When they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost, and they screamed. Seeing him was terrifying to all of them. Just then he spoke to them. Be encouraged. It's me. Don't be afraid. He got into the boat, and the wind settled down. 
His disciples were so baffled, they were beside themselves. That's because they hadn't understood about the loaves. Their minds had been closed so that they resisted God's ways. When Jesus and his disciples had crossed the lake, they landed at Gennesaret, anchored the boat, and came ashore. People immediately recognized Jesus and ran around that whole region, bringing sick people on their mats to wherever they heard he was. Wherever he went, villages, cities, or farming communities, they would place the sick in the marketplaces and beg him to allow them to touch even the hem of his clothing. Everyone who touched him was healed. Amen. All right, Mark chapter 6. So, you made it. We made it. We're here. And as you might have noticed, Mark 6 has a lot in it. I, I always know it's going to be a fun sermon when I get finished, like, writing my notes and feeling like, man, I could have done a whole series on this. And I feel like I could have done a whole series on Mark chapter 6. And, and that's because Mark is such a, like, plot-heavy situation. Like, the author of Mark is not here to give you the details about a whole lot, not here to set the scene. This is like action-packed. Stuff is happening. There are six separate stories in this chapter. And so we have to observe, like, how do these all fit together? Because they were threaded together on purpose. They joined together to tell something more than any single one of them. So we're going to go through it, and we're going to go through each piece, and you're going to join me in my queer and trans perspective. Now that is what we are highlighting right now, queerness and transness in the scriptures, but there are endless ways to, to kind of understand my subjective reading, as there are endless ways to understand your subjective reading. This is a fantasy that we have, that anyone can read the Bible objectively, or literally, as some people like to talk about, that's actually not a thing. The idea that some people are being faithful to the text and other people are not holds in it a fantasy that the text can be uh, understood apart from its reader. We understand the text from our own subjective vantage point, which is actually one of the greatest arguments for being in community together. Because if we are all looking at the holy, looking at the divine, looking at the truth from our own perspective, we can only see a piece of it, but together we can see the whole. And we have been taught to only see, hear, understand from one very limited perspective. So it is a practice we have together to join our perspectives to discern truth as a collective, as a community, as the people of God. So today we are going to do that. Now I want to elevate my experiences of queerness and transness, but there are other things that are going to come up. Um, my being a parent and a pastor, uh, my being in recovery from addiction, there are things that I need to be really aware of, my whiteness, my positions of power and privilege, and how those are actually more aligned with the dominant reading that we've been taught. So here we go. Let's get into it. Now, story one, Jesus is in his hometown, and he is faced with doubt. He is faced with rejection. They think they know Jesus. They're like, we know you. Aren't you Mary's kid? 
Aren't you the son of that carpenter who might not even be your real dad? Like, they know Jesus, they think. And even though Jesus has traveled and matured, even though Jesus has come more fully into himself, even though Jesus has begun to use his power in the world, make an impact elsewhere, when he comes home, they think they know who he is. And they get annoyed, offended, resentful when he tries to be his full self. Now, personally, there are a lot of ways that this resonates with me. One is, as I mentioned, I am in recovery from heroin addiction. So I did a bunch of terrible things when I was a younger person. I was struggling with a lot of deep trauma in ways that impacted my relationships. And there have been many times when, like Jesus, I have been in a position where I have become a new person. I have come into my power, into my wholeness, but I can't be seen for who I am now because I'm only seen for who I was. Similarly, in my marriage, I end up not like Jesus in this case, but like the hometown. Cameron and I will get into a conflict, and I'll write him off as though he's done something that he used to do. And he says, can't I change? Can I not be made a new person? See me for who I am now, not the mistake I made before. But my hardened heart isn't open to the work God is doing in him, not without that invitation to grow, to be different. But I cannot read this without blinking, flashing, rainbow-colored lights. <laughs> because as a queer person, I feel like there is something very heartbreakingly familiar about going out into the world, discovering and embracing the fullness of yourself, only to come home to the people who raised you, who should know you and love you the best, and find rejection, misunderstanding, resentment. That sounds so very, very queer to me. The text says they were repulsed by him and fell into sin. And for me, when I read that, what came up was a memory. There were some adults in my life when I was growing up that I consider chosen family. They're a straight couple. And as a teenager, I was not out to them. Now, they knew uh, gay and lesbian-identified people. They considered themselves allies. And they were ostensibly kind of on board with LGBT people, or at least LG people. And I would talk to them about prejudice and where that was coming from, particularly in the church. And I remember them saying to me once that they thought that the real barrier was what they called the ick factor. They said they identified with that ick that they couldn't imagine being intimate with someone of the same sex assignment. It felt icky to them. Now they felt like they were on my side or on the side of queer people, but they were repulsed and fell into sin. And that feeling, that feeling of othering, ugh, that is a sin. That is a sin of the world that wants heteronormativity. That is a sin of the world that wants homogeneity. That is a sin of the world that will not recognize the divine beauty of God's creation. That sin is something Jesus felt in his body when he went home. Prophets are honored everywhere except in their hometown, among their relatives, and in their families of origin. 
It makes me wonder about the queer prophets of my youth and of the present. Because that couple would actually never talk that way now. So something has already begun to shift. And it is the queer prophets that have done the leading and the work on that. It is the queer prophets now. It is the trans kids in Texas and Florida now who are prophetically leading despite the rejection of their hometowns. The text says that in the midst of this horrible environment, Jesus was unable, I just want to pause on that word. We don't like that word with Jesus, do we? We don't like that word with God. But the scriptures say that he was unable to perform miracles there, except that he placed his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Now, I think that's still pretty miraculous. <laughs> We're going to give Jesus some credit here. But something must be happening for the scriptures to say that he was unable, that something was in his way, that the blockage, the, the pain, the wound in that relationship to his hometown and his beloveds, the people he came from, that that was so wounding, that was so debilitating, that was so cruel, that it rendered him unable to be the full, miraculous Jesus. It rendered him unable to perform the miracles that were part of who he was. He was appalled by their disbelief, it says. The prophets of a queer and queered future have suffered through this rejection, the sin of their hometowns. But someday this won't feel so prophetic. Because my guess is if I asked all of the queer people in this room who has had that experience, that experience of feeling embraced and celebrated elsewhere, but rejected at home, too many of us would identify with that. But my guess is also that it would be fewer of us than in the 90s. And my hope is that there will be fewer still 10, 20, 30 years to come. That is why I'm so excited about our nursery care and our kids in the back and our Sunday school and our vacation Bible club because we are part of the prophets of the queer and queered future where children can be honored in their hometown for their queerness. They can learn from day one that the fullness of who they are is embraced and celebrated. That's the power of the Holy Spirit speaking truth to us through scripture because maybe 30 years from now this scripture will mean something else it will have shifted and it can point us towards different truths story two in mark is like an epilogue to story one because after experiencing this rejection this frustration jesus gathers the 12 his group his people the prophets that he is pulling together, the people that are going to perform the miracles that spread the word of the good news. He prepares them to go out, gives them some very basic, practical instructions, but then says this, whatever house you enter, remain there until you leave that place. If a place doesn't welcome you or listen to you, as you leave, Shake the dust off your feet as a witness against them. Jesus, in sending his people out into a, a place that he knows might be hostile, gives them permission to disengage. Jesus demonstrates a boundary, saying there will come a point at which you can say, this is enough. 
and I'm moving on. Now, marginalized people have have often this feeling, or perhaps they've just been told, that it is their responsibility to heal the wounds of their oppressors, to bring them on board. And to some degree, that's true. Jesus is going out to these towns. Jesus is sending out the 12 to spread the word, sending them to places he knows they will highly likely encounter at least some rejection. But Jesus also demonstrates a boundary on that. If they aren't welcoming or listening, if they aren't welcoming or listening, as you leave, not if you leave, as you leave, the presumption is you leave in a place that you are not embraced or heard. It presumes the leaving and it offers another instruction. Shake the dust off. Brush that dirt off your shoulder. I'm a little sad we didn't do Jay-Z today. Don't bring it with you. Don't let their stink come with you. And this applies to so many scenarios. As a queer person, this is why I don't spin my wheels or waste my energy endlessly debating with individuals who don't believe I have a right to be here in the church, in love, in a family on this earth. I am not here to justify my existence as a queer person. That doesn't mean I don't have conversations about the clobber verses. That doesn't mean I'm not open to talking about how I interpret the scriptures that have been weaponized against me. But I get to choose and I get to leave when I feel I have reached the end of our progress. And I get to shake it off. Not let their hate, their doubt, their invalidation cling to me. I can be free of that. I can move on to change the world, and I won't let them trap me into a hole, distract me from the work of spreading the gospel by ruminating with them over whether I have a right to be here. Now, that's easier said than done. Not only the leaving, but the shaking the dirt off. I mean, like, whoa, that is, it's hard. It's hard because people's invalidation, people's shame, it does, it clings to us like dirt in the desert, like the dust that you can never quite get out of the cracks of everything. But it is a holy instruction to shake that off and to move on. And just so you know, I actually did write this commentary. I'm going to read you a little bit of what I wrote. Jesus suggests that while we travel through this life to spread liberation and queer love, those who truly reject us have failed us, not us, them. We have a right and a responsibility to brush the dirt off our shoulders and leave, not letting our bright souls gather dust while we beg to be welcomed by those who have failed us. We are called to spread love and hope and joy. We trust that God will reconcile all things to God. We reconcile that, or we trust that God will reconcile all of creation to God's self. We trust that at some point in eternity, we will be united. But we can walk away. We can brush that dirt off. And we can live. Story three is this strange interlude. It's actually the one where we get the most detail about John the Baptist and his murder, his execution by the state. 
And not just a, a broad, ominous state apparatus, but the whims of the people in power. And I think this is why we have these kinds of details. It's a little hard to track. You've got Herod, Herodias, and Herodias, their daughter. Herodias, the elder, was married to Philip, Herod's brother. There's all kinds of soap opera -y drama built into this royal family, this family in power and privilege. And I believe that what this text is trying to communicate to us with all of this, the dance, the, the banquet, the I will grant you a wish. John the Baptist was killed for two reasons. He challenged the immorality of empire, and the whims of that empire can do what it will. Because prior, John had just been imprisoned because Herod liked him, but Herodias didn't like him. We cannot please the powers of empire because the powers of empire are not operating on a logic. They are operating on whim. They're operating on self-interest. We can try and try and try to be respectable enough to be accepted enough that the empire won't come down to crush us. But it may be interpersonal drama between Herod, Herod, and Herod that ends up coming to crush us in the end. And so we see that John was victim of that. That John, who is calling out the immorality of a marriage relationship in a world where queer love is always put under scrutiny, John is calling attention to this marriage which is built on power, on material wealth, on politics. This is the standard of empire, and it doesn't get applied evenly. Everyone else is held to a different kind of scrutiny. It's a deflection to say, we're going to blame John the Baptist instead of examining all of these horrendous interpersonal politics. This marriage is a tool for material and political gain. And John makes the mistake of pointing that out. And the hammer comes down. But guess what? We can't avoid those mistakes. It is not a mistake to call out empire. It is a reality that empire will continue to lash out until we dismantle it. And so afterward, the disciples go on and continue to do the work John's disciples grieve him, lay him to rest, honor his life. And then the disciples continue in their work to imagine a kingless kingdom, a different kind of power. Story four, Jesus feeding the 5,000. Now this is where we see what real power is. This is where in contrast to the so-called power of empire, we see the power of the kingdom, a kingless empire where all have what they need. It is so hard to envision. It is so hard to imagine that even with Jesus in the mix, the disciples are like, oh man, these guys are getting hungry. We better send them away. And Jesus is like, you feed them. They're hungry. And they're like, and Jesus has faith, and demonstrates that there is enough. Now, we could parse how and why there is enough. We could say it is a, fierce, a, a physical miracle that Jesus is physically multiplying a couple loaves and a couple fish into more. We could take an entirely materialist approach and say, hey, there was probably enough in that crowd 
People had stuff squirreled away in their bag, or they knew someone who's going to run out some food to them, and they asked for more. We could say there was enough there, and that by having faith and saying, we are all here to feed one another, they discovered that not only was there enough for each to, to eat, but with significant leftovers. That when we all come not to hoard, not in scarcity, not in fear of what might run out, but in hope of what might be provided, that there is more than enough for all. However we understand this miracle, it is a miracle in a world of scarcity and empire. And so we celebrate it. And we celebrate its queerness because queer people know what it means to become more, to have more, to be more, to create generosity out of scarcity, to discover more in oneself than you were ever told could possibly be there. And in that queer experience of transforming scarcity into abundance, we see miracles. After a long day of teaching, the people feel the gospel. They eat the gospel. They share it as a meal. There are so many meals in the gospel. And so when we break down that scarcity, when we defy binaries, when we reject the normative expectations for how we care for one another, we discover a cornucopia of queerness that provides far more than we had imagined or been told was possible. But the new queer kingdom is truly for all. Story five, Jesus walks on water. It is night. There's a lot going on. Those disciples having just had this queer, wild, miraculous experience there in the boat, but they are being whipped about by the world around them. Jesus is just out for a walk. He's out for a walk on the water like he does. But as he approaches, they don't recognize him. Now, this story is a kind of balm for me as a trans person. Because coming out as trans and non-binary felt like a miracle. It felt like I was finally walking on water after years of struggling, flailing, and nearly drowning. And so, I was just out on a walk, but I was being myself. I knew who I was. I could call myself by name. And as I walked out on the water towards my queer kin, not even trying to hop in, just trying to wave, hey, I saw them terrified. I saw them not recognize me. People, my people, LGB people, didn't recognize me. Hell, other trans people didn't recognize me. Binary trans people didn't recognize me. I remember I was out for lunch with a friend of mine, a trans woman who was also religious and spiritual. We had a lot in common, and I looked up to her, and she told me that it made her angry when non-binary people identified as trans. And I didn't know what to do, and so I quietly nodded and continued eating. I talked to another trans and non-binary friend later that day, and I said, I know that trans women are so vulnerable in this world, like, am I encroaching on something? Do I not have a right to be here? 
And they've said, Jonah, that's scarcity. That's capitalism. That's not enoughism. That's a hierarchy again that says only some of us can be free. There's not room for all of us to be free. And the feeling that there isn't room enough, that's empire. But the liberation, the gospel, solidarity says that I can't be free until you are free, and you can't be free until I am free. There is room enough for all of us at the table, even if we bring something a little different every time. Now that hurt when I experienced that because I wanted my miracle to be shared. And Jesus could have kept on walking when they didn't recognize him. The hurt there, too, was that I thought we were in this together. Like Jesus, I said, don't you understand what we've been doing? Weren't you there for the loaves? What about Stonewall? What about Marcia? What about the drag scene and gender bending? Isn't this where we're headed? Do you not see where these miracles are going, that we can all be free? And it does. It makes me want to just keep walking past that boat altogether. But Jesus didn't. Jesus stopped, and his response was, be encouraged. He said to them who didn't recognize him, who feared him, who didn't get it, what he had been doing, what they had been doing together, he said, be encouraged. It's me. Don't be afraid. And so Jesus is an example for us to say when those communities who we thought were with us, who were performing miracles with us, when we are to ourselves, when we are fully ourselves and not seen, which is not a, an experience that I have uniquely as a non-binary trans person. Ask any black person in the LGBT community. Ask trans people walking into a place with a little rainbow flag on it. Ask anybody who is disabled and trying to engage in community that gets other parts of their identity but doesn't get that. We have this experience commonly where the people we are performing miracles with all of a sudden don't recognize us in our fullness. And instead of moving on and saying, well, fine, I'm done. This is a moment not to shake it off. This is a moment to get in the boat. This is a moment to say, hey, be encouraged because I am aware of something that you are not. The miracle can be bigger. The miracle can be more full. We can walk on water. Liberation is more than you thought or imagined. You can't even recognize it, but it's here, and I am a part of it. And I'm not going anywhere. And so we do this together as community because we can't achieve those same miracles alone. We have to be a people together. Story six. So what happens when we are recognized, alive, miraculous, and in community? Jesus moves through a town and everyone who even touches his cloak is healed. Our healing is communal. Our healing is exponential. We are miracles on our own. We together are a miracle. We move through spaces and our presence is healing. And these are truths that can all be happening at the same time. We can be moving miraculously, healing people through the world, unrecognized even by the people we are miraculous with, rejected by our hometowns, simultaneously brushing that dirt off and getting in the boat. These are the queer experiences of all of God's people, all of each other. 
But we can't get that fullness. We can't see the entire image of God unless we are listening to one another. This is what I read in Mark 6. How does it speak to you? How does it speak to others who have different identities than you do? If I can see myself and the image of God in me in this text, then you can too. And that is our call, to shout it out, to share it with one another, all of each other, not just the powerful. So who are you reading with? The scripture is yours. It's for you. We can reclaim it, but we have to speak out and we have to listen to one another. When we do, we, with Jesus, perform miracles. Will you pray with me? God of all things, wow, you've got a lot going on. This is such a dense and packed text, and it is one of 16 chapters. God, help us. Help us to drill down. Help us to sit with the wisdom of your word, to recognize the living word. God, help us to, to bring ourselves to the text, not set ourselves aside. God, help us to shed the lies we have been told that we have nothing to say to biblical interpretation. God, help us discern with the Holy Spirit and with one another, with the wisdom of those who have dedicated their lives to this. God, help us to hear, to see, to feel, to be a new truth in your reading, in your telling. May we provide for one another. May we walk on water. May we recognize hope and liberation in each other. And may we all be healed. Amen.